Welcome to Rave Dad's Diary, the show that explores the globalization of electronic dance music from the perspective of a rural Alberta boy turned raver. I'm your host and resident rave dad, Paul Brooks. Rave Dad's Diary broadcasts on CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary at the University of Calgary campus and community radio station located on Treaty 7 land. I acknowledge the traditional territories of the people of the Treaty 7 region in southern Alberta, which includes the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Siksika, the Pagani, and Kaina First Nations, the Sutina First Nation, and the Stony Nakoda. The city of Calgary is also home to Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. On today's episode, Nick and Duncan of the Funk Hunters talk about the summer of 2008 and how they went full circle from hustling their way onto stages at the inaugural Pemberton Music Festival as, quote, security professionals, to performing at the 2016 event on a lineup with acts like Pearl Jam and Snoop Dogg. We'll also hear a mix the duo recorded in 2010 and distributed at Shambhala Music Festival that year. The mix is strangely prophetic. It features some edits Nick and Duncan made of Jurassic 5 tracks. Little did they know at the time, they would go on to release music and tour with J5's Charlie Tuna. Full disclosure, I'm writing and editing most of today's episode at a tire shop, waiting to get my winter tires put on. Real Rave Dad stuff. Time for a check-in. This is episode 5. Next week, we'll be at the halfway mark in the season, episode 6. I'm having a lot of fun producing this show, and I'm getting positive feedback. So far, the biggest challenge I'm having producing this two-hour radio program on the fly is, surprise, surprise, time management. I feel like I'm constantly running out of time. And scheduling interviews in 2020 is whack. There's so much to unpack and so many more voices and stories I want you to hear. I guess that means there's more to explore in future seasons of Rave Dad's Diary. We'll spend the entirety of this episode in the past, but I promise contemporary topics are on the horizon. In fact, I have two interviews scheduled next week with people I never thought would reply to my interview requests. If you want to get in touch with me, please email me ravedad at cjsw.com You can also follow Rave Dad's Diary on Instagram and get at me there. Making this series has got me listening to a lot of music from my past and examining the ways electronic music and culture has shaped my identity. Electro House and Neon Splashed Indie Electronica piqued my interest in electronic dance music. But the moment I heard Scream drop Midnight Request Line in the Village at Shambhala Music Festival in 2007, I instantly converted to an agent of dubstep. As some of us went down a dark and wobbly path, another camp of young producers, DJs, and rave enthusiasts on Canada's West Coast were building on the rave community's love of breakbeats, infusing new breaks with old-school funk, soul, and hip-hop. Disco is back. And Boogie is alive. 
I met Nick Middleton and Duncan Smith when they were just at the outset of their Funk Hunters project. I unknowingly crashed at Duncan's house with their roommate at the time and mutual friend Matt Donsey, a.k.a. Neighbor. This track we're listening to right now is Neighbor, and it's called Disco Is Back. Duncan lived with Neighbor and some other Calgary expats in a flat off Commercial Drive in Vancouver. Dubbed the Brotel, the house was home to DJs, producers, and MCs, including Trevor Spiltmilk and Devin Think Tank Adams. To me, it was the unofficial Calgary Embassy in Vancouver. Since that time, Nick and Duncan's career has exploded. I've worked with them on a few different projects, and we've clocked many hours in the rave. I caught up with the duo over Zoom to hear about how they went from playing small parties on Galliano Island to making official remixes for U2 and rocking some of the biggest festival stages in the world. I reached Duncan on Galliano Island, where he's holding it down in a studio he built in the basement of his mom's former restaurant. Nick is in Vancouver. Tell me about Galliano Island and how that relates to the Funk Hunters story. Sure. Well, we both have two very different origin stories going to Galliano, and Duncan starts many years before mine, so maybe I'll let him jump in. Yeah, well, I moved I moved here in 1987 when I was two years old, and um, I spent most of my childhood here, but I was kind of going, my father lived in the out east in Ontario, so I was kind of going back and forth, and um, I mean, I guess the what really brought Nick and I together was the kind of creation of the Gulf Islands Film and Television School, which was started in uh, 1995 by uh, uh, a quite notorious Galliano Islander named George Harris. You know, I think my first experience with the film school would have been in 95 or 96 uh, through elementary school. We did a program there and like, you know, I made my first film at the film school, I think when I was 10 or 11 years old. Um, flash forward to the early 2000s and um, Nick went to the film school as a student and then began to return every summer and got involved working there but yeah Nick got very involved with the film school I was also kind of working there in and off but I don't think our our professional relationship ever overlapped at the film school it was always like I was there maybe before Nick or at different times doing some mentorship but Nick definitely took like a very heavy role which ended essentially with you run, managing the entire school. Um, but we became kind of, we knew each other for years. And I think it was around 2005, 2006 that we um, kind of started hanging out and became friends. And at the time I was kind of infatuated with DJing and just kind of gotten into it. But what I didn't realize was Nick had already um, kind of had this exposure to, to electronic music through going to Shambhala and had been a few times um, so it was about at that time when he actually introduced me to a lot of music, uh, that was from Shambhala, um, you know, a lot of this kind of funky breakbeat stuff and, and that kind of changed my whole perspective. Cause I was really only exposed to like, you know, rock hip hop, maybe some very mainstream, like fat boy, slim electronic music type stuff. So, um, so I think it was around that time, uh, around 2006, 2007, that um, we kind of both uh, started gelling through music. 
he was living on Galliano. I, uh, and Galliano is a very small community for people that don't know. I mean, there's, you know, <clears throat> roughly a thousand full-time residents there and, you know, doubles or, or more in the summer with tourists coming through. But I was living on Vancouver Island, born in Calgary, but grew up on Vancouver Island. And um, my high school, like drama or acting teacher, he sent his daughter to this film school on Galliano. So that's how I, I'd never been to Galliano or even knew it existed. And he was like, you got to go to this uh, film school. And I was into acting. And so I came over and actually took like their first ever acting on camera course or something. And this film school, the unique thing about what George Harris built there was it's like a live-in residency. So it's almost like a summer camp on steroids for kids because you you get to, you know, most of the programs in the summer are teenagers. So you get to, uh, you know, leave home, go to this island, live there for a whole and, week. They give you yeah, just one board. week. Yeah, you just, go there for a, a one week program, you get room and board and um, you just get thrown into it and you make a movie in six days. It's kind of like their tagline. And it's, it's awesome. So I went there to take an acting course and did that. And then um, I can't remember how it went, but I think one of the movies I acted in won an award, which, you know, George had an amazing way of sounding special. So he would, you know, his, he was such an amazing marketer. So he would contact, he would run his own award ceremony each year, give out awards for the films produced, and then, you know, notify the parents and the kids that they'd won awards, give them a scholarship and get them to come back. So I was like, I got to go back. So I went back the next year and started taking uh, filmmaking courses. And I was always like technically inclined, but I was really into acting. Like I was trying to get an agent, and like I wanted to be an actor. And I went back the next year and uh, ended up taking film courses. And then that was kind of the rest was history. Like I went back every summer. And as soon as I was done high school, I just moved full time. And George was this amazing guy who just was like, if anybody had energy, he was like, yeah, come on, just come in. We'll take care of you. We'll give you a place to live. And so I would just live on the grounds for the whole summer. And, you know, eventually, you know, me being a teenage boy wasn't jiving with film school rules. So he was like, you got to get a place, you know, like you can't be smoking weed with the kids. <laughs> One of my first memories of you is uh, my mom's boyfriend at the time paying you to paint the restaurant, which my mom owned here, which okay. I'm currently <laughs> right. sitting yeah. in. The studio I'm in right now is in the basement of that restaurant. So it's all come full circle. Yeah. Um, but the really, I think the really like interesting thing about the film school, like, and I could talk about it forever because it totally shaped who I was and, you know, gave me lots of business sense and like marketing sense because George just let me run with it. And over the years, yeah, I mean, I really took over and managed the, the whole school. But, um, but in those early years, what was really interesting was because I moved there and didn't really hang out with anybody my age. That was actually really like important to me and my discovery in music because I came over as kind of like a cocky kid who was in trouble from the city and drove like a car with like a really loud exhaust and so like I just and I just didn't connect with any locals but the people I did connect with was this amazing like just incredibly inspiring network of teachers that George would have coming over and he was really into this idea that he didn't want academics like these were people who were working in their craft that would take a week off and come over and mentor kids and so you had some of Canada's like most award-winning filmmakers you know from Jennifer Abbott who made The Corporation, Velcro Ripper who did Scared Sacred, um, uh, you know Nettie Wilde, um, Brett Gaylor who did Rip Remix Manifesto like just you know an incredible roster of filmmakers and with them came, you know, techs and editors and, you know, creatives. And so naturally, there is all these people that were older than me that uh, a bunch of them would have stickers on cars or on laptops or whatever that would say, like, back then, I think Shambla had a tagline. I remember it was like Electra 
the electric Buddha festival or follow yeah. the electric Buddha or something. And I used to be like, what's that? And they would tell me about Shambhala and tell me about Burning Man and, and all these, you know, things that just seemed so foreign to me. And my friend who was living at the school with me at the time, Lucas, who was even younger than me, finally one year after we, you know, kept hearing about this one summer, we we're like, well, we're going, like, we're going to figure out how to get to this festival. And we hitched a ride um, with a infamous, you know, hippie couple from Victoria in the back of their van when we were like 16 or something and, and hitchhiked with them up to Chambla and went to Chambla. But really because of the connection we had to these people at the film school and coming back from Chambla, that everything changed. And so that, then I really remember the years of like downloading electronic music and being at the film school and starting to collect CDs of this stuff and Duncan coming up and, and helping with some of, we were doing some like extreme filmmaking programs where we would take kids snowboarding and take them skateboarding and Duncan's an awesome skateboarder. He was super involved in those programs. And so that's where that this like musical, you know, story started to kick off for us. Um, but it's interesting. Like I always, you could always trace these, these things in your history of like, Oh, if that didn't happen, this wouldn't happen. I'm sure you know, everybody has those, but the film school for sure was like a real yeah. defining thing. It was like this apex of all these things that collided. You know, so now into that time of, of Nick and I becoming friends, I, I, we, we started DJing on the Island pretty heavily, like at all the local parties. And, and that was a lot of fun. You're listening to rave dad's diary on 90.9 FM CJSW. I'm your host, Paul Brooks. And today, my guests are Nick Middleton and Duncan Smith of the Funk Hunters. Next, we're going to hear how the legendary West Coast rave posse, Moo Crew, came to be. So, okay, I have this vivid memory, Nick, of you, like, I swear you had like a Georgia Strait in your hand. And you came up to me in the restaurant and you were like, have you seen this? And it was the poster for Pemberton Music Festival. Oh my God, yeah, I think I remember that. And you were like, man. We gotta go to this. Like, look yeah. at this. And it was like, it was so, it, you know, it was the disaster, the, the craziest lineup ever. The infamous, but yeah, it was like Metallica, Jay Z, you know, Tom Eddie, like, Mother, yeah. uh, uh, Coldplay, DJ Shadow, yeah. kind of like it just went on. It was just such a crazy Tom, yeah, Tom Petty. It was so nuts. And, uh, and so Nick devised this plan that we would all, uh, because he had experience working at Shambhala. He's like, I think I can get us all on the, on the volunteer team, like the security team. So Nick started working this out and like, it went from like three <laughs> of us to like seven of us who were all like trained security professionals. And uh, of course, like not, none of us were except for baby Nick, but like, even at what point were you a trained security <laughs> professional? I don't know. Anyway. And then, so the numbers keep growing within the, I like our, some friends on the Island and uh, my family was running this restaurant and we had this like white cube van, like a one ton four diesel cube van with no windows on the back, like just a big box moving truck, but it had this like access panel from the front two seats. So I ended up like asking my mom, I was like, can we take this, this cube van to the festival and like use it as our RV? And she was like, oh, sure. <laughs> so so we like set up, I remember we installed these bench seats and like put seat belts in the back. And we were like really concerned about safety for like, I don't know, the first couple hours. And um, and so we drove up to Pemberton Fest and we get there and we, it was just a gong show. We were in the volunteer crew. So they had us camped out at the airport, which was about like five kilometers from the site. And we pulled in there and, that was actually where they were parking all the vehicles for the festival. 
as I recall, there was like helicopters going over and searchlights and there was people everywhere and these bus loads trying to get to the festival and so many people had given up. They were like walking in the road. So we like park on the end of the tarmac or like the runway because the airport wasn't being used and we're like camped out the edge of this farm field and we set up, we had turntables and we set up and we like started like listening to music. Next thing you know, it's like 5 a.m. and we go to sleep and uh, and that's when we were like, I was in the back of the van. Everyone else is intense. My older brother was also sleeping in the back of the van and we heard this cow mooing and that's when like, it was like, what the heck's going on here like i guess we're at a farm field that's definitely there's there's cows okay so it's like moo and then and then we realized it was totally a human making a cow noise so i thought it was our friend sam i'm like sam like shut up and he's like dude it's not me and then we like open the back of the vehicle and it's like moo this mooing's still existing and we look down there's a this kiwi girl pops out of her tent nearby and she's like oh it's this guy he like won't stop mooing and i'm like okay this is crazy so i walk up to this tent and i was like man can you uh can you stop mooing and he was like boo and then uh, i'm like come on like we're really we're trying to go to sleep and then he got really you know aggressive and was like you've been you're trying to sleep i've been trying to sleep you guys have been playing music moo 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 and like i was just like oh my god this guy's crazy and so just being like kind of whatever, not super cool. I, uh, I ended up pulling all his tent pegs <laughs> and watched his tent collapse on him and kind of like walked away in this like cocky kind of like, Oh yeah, got you, man. And like, I was at halfway back to the van and I like looked back and saw this like struggling guy in his tent and was like, okay, that was so not cool. So I went back to rescue the guy and I like pull him out and he ends up attacking me. The guy ends up getting like arrested and taken out of the festival. And I'm like, now it's like 6.30 in the morning and I'm just like ruined the whole weekend. And then our friend Sam was like, we just got to own this man, we're Camp Moo. And so that like birthed Camp Moo, which didn't really become much of a big deal that weekend. And we ended up having this amazing weekend, Nick. I still have all these uh, hilarious photos of us like working the moat security during Tom Petty. <laughs> like it was, we were like placed at the, they were like, we were the front lines of security at this festival. And like, we, I remember on the Sunday night meeting people that were like, I was like, man, how did you get a ticket? And they were like, ticket. Like I just walked in the front gates. Like there's no security. Like, this whole place is a shit show. And uh, anyway, so that it was, that was a week before Shambhala or two weeks before. And so we ended up taking the van and it was at that 2008 Shambhala where I feel that like the Moo Crew started, which it basically was just a, a rolling like conversation of, of cow puns for the most part. <laughs> and and then we turned the, ca- the van into a cow and started this camp. And it was at that camp that like a girl showed up with another friend who we didn't really know at the time but she's now like one of our great friends and Nick and I were DJing in the back of the van and she was like sitting on the ground, probably like high on mushrooms or something. And just like, yo man, you guys, like you guys definitely hunt the funk. You're the funk hunters. (laughs) And like, that's how we got the name. And that's when I feel like everything just kind of from that point on 
Nick and I had this like name of what this project, which we didn't know what it would become. Hey, can you, my cat is absolutely going apeshit. <laughs> we had to stop the interview here for a second while Duncan moved his cute baby kitty out of the way. Yeah, and I just feel like things really, things really just picked up that that summer, and um, and the Moo Crew is just this. I I feel like it. We, we did some events under the name, but I ultimately feel like it was just this catalyst which led to like the creation of the Funk Hunters. And um, totally, yeah. And we and for years we you know had a it was it's almost like a like it was like a living breathing meme in a way because like we it wasn't like official. But like there was these weird elements where like at one point we actually had at mookrew.net email addresses. <laughs> like like we also had uh like our camp for years at Shambla was called like Moo Crew, but it was kind of like a secret, like only if you were like in the know did you know about Camp Moo. But yeah. I do remember that Pemberton Festival very well though, because it was it was, you know, arguably like a pretty transformative festival for like the BC landscape because we had never had like I, I didn't grow up going to Merritt Mountain Music Festival and like I understand the capacity there like the total attendance was like through the roof and it's it's like mind-boggling to even Wikipedia that festival but aside from Merritt that 2008 Pemberton Festival was probably the first ever lineup that ever came to Western Canada that like was on the level of something like a Coachella or something so it was I, and I do, I love that you said that because I don't, I bear, I've never heard you say that story, but me coming into the restaurant where you worked with a Pemberton flyer, I totally remember you, now. You were like, check and this out. <laughs> I think that just goes back to what you were saying, Paul, when we, you know, we, when we first, before we started this interview, you were just talking about people making things happen and, you know, trying to, you know, just, just go with it. And I just think that story is such a funny metaphor of kind of how we've always done things because, we're standing in this little restaurant on this tiny island in Galliano. And I'm like, dude, look at this lineup that's coming to our province. And like two months later, we are roaming this festival like we own the place with our backpacks on, with our security shirts tucked in the backpacks because we're not working because it's such a gong show. They don't even have shifts for us. And everything's at such capacity, you can't even get to the stages. So we would decide what set we want to see. We'd all go around the corner, take out our shirts, put our security shirts on, put our backpacks back on, rock up to the front doors, and they would literally go, oh, there you are. We need you inside. <laughs> and inside we'd go. And that was that was the whole weekend at Pemberton, basically. It was like, holy shit, we hit the VIP here, and we just got to watch all this amazing music. And uh, yeah, it was, that was, it's funny because I had been to lots of electronic raves and festivals, but I don't think I'd ever been to like that kind of a music festival before and seen like real, real rock stars, you know? So that was, that was. That, I was never a nine, like memory. much of a Nine Inch Nails fan. Not that I wasn't a fan. I just hadn't had a lot of exposure to their music. And that would, that'll still go down in one of the most legendary performances I've ever seen. And visual, they had this crazy, uh, translucent uh light screen like scrim thing that was like led lit and it was and this was in 2008 too so it was like mind melting but i i just remember that being like wow this is and now you know touring the electronic circuit and going to these big festivals and seeing where production is gone you're like oh, okay but back then that was like especially for a couple little like island boys who were like used to like lighting off a couple roman candles at midnight is the <laughs> highlight yeah. of the production. and you know what's crazy is to take it full circle so like that was 2008 well uh when did we we just played 
Pemberton Festival in 2018 or 2019? 2018? No, we played it 2016. That was that long? It was four four years ago already? <laughs> yeah, okay. So, t- yeah, just to bring it full <laughs> circle, with, you know, Pemberton Festival obviously has a, you know, a long a long history of you know not working out and people kept trying to revive it but in its in its most recent iteration which i guess was 2016 when a different group of people tried to bring back pemberton festival and they did have a pretty amazing lineup but the attendance was nowhere near at the level of that 2008 one but we got booked for it and got to play in probably one of the you know biggest stages that's ever been built for um you know our style of music and but also i mean anderson pack literally played right after us it was it was all genres on that stage but it was just such a huge stage and we got to play and i still can think of some of the photos because it was so iconic with like the squamish mountains or the pemberton mountains behind and we got to play on that stage and one of our friends who's like an amazing extreme athlete like bass jumped during our set out of an airplane and like landed in the audience and and it was just so wild to think that 10 years before that yeah we were literally running around going through back doors wearing security shirts at that that festival just kind of what happened at Shambhala as well so yeah it was the same sort of story with Shambhala (laughs) I think you came over to Vancouver in 2009 Nick but I left Galliano Halloween of 2008 and I remember we went and DJed a party at an Elk Lake yeah. his barn party and i actually had my truck with all my possessions in it and i went and dj the party with you and then took the ferry like i went from galliano over to vancouver island to dj this party and in 2008 and this was like our first like gig as the funk hunters i think pretty much like with the name was the thing now and we uh we did the gig and then i moved to vancouver one of the first Sometime in that winter of 2008 or nine, uh, I, I ran into Willis, um, who, you know, kind of was the founder of the Shaw DJs in Vancouver. And, and Willis, I think we were beatboxing and like freestyle rapping outside of a venue. And I got to know him a little bit, but I, for, for whatever reason, this, um, this kind of stuck with me. He said, you know, if you want, because I was like really trying to get booked uh, for gigs and actually Willis was one of the first people to book me because I'd made a mix and uh just under my like under my own name I think this might have been just before you came to Vancouver Nick or you just showed up because you came to that gig with me but it was it was Halloween the following year it was Halloween 2009 and Willis booked me because he had heard a mixtape that I don't think anyone else listened to except for him which was perfect because he was a promoter (laughs) so he booked me for this gig and no one knew who I was and you came and it was like I got booked but I remember we kind of did the gig together we made edits for it together and you were kind of there with me and i remember that was like in a way that was almost like the first funk hunters booth. where what was the that venue? Was at the dollhouse that was at the dollhouse and it was oh, silly yeah. mean it was one of those yeah. silly mean events and um but willis gave me this advice and he said if you want to get gigs just book some promoters to play your party <laughs> and and so it was pretty much right after that silly ween that you and I started throwing events. Do you remember exactly when you came to Vancouver and what was crazy when you came to Vancouver, I had just moved into the Brotel and you came, moved a few months after and you guys found this place like three blocks from down the road. Yeah, I remember cause I was, I was still living on Galliano. Yeah, you went ahead and uh, the move was actually more symbolic than just going to Vancouver for me because I was in the middle of also trying to finish a university degree. And I kept 
coming to Galliano in the summers and going back to Nanaimo because I was going to Vancouver Island University. And I kept having this like internal battle of like, I'm doing the things I already want to be doing and school's holding me back. But I just like really wanted to finish this degree. And I was like, if I, if I stay on Galliano or if I go to Vancouver, like I'm just never going to finish this degree. And I was like one, like a semester and a half of credits away from finishing. So like just, you know, basically a fall and a spring. And I was like, well, if I go to Vancouver, I could transfer to like SFU or something um, and do like a communications degree. And then totally out of the blue, Jennifer Abbott, who made the corporation right at the end of the summer, calls me at the film school. And she's, you know, one of the most respected filmmakers in Canada and was like, hey, Nick, can I meet you like separate from the film school? And I'm like, oh, this is weird. No idea about what. And she offers me a job. She's like, I'm making a documentary. You could, you could watch it today. It's on Netflix. It's called I Am. It's the story of Tom Shadiak, who's like one of Hollywood's biggest comedy filmmakers who made all of Jim Carrey's movies. Tom Shadiak wants to make a documentary about his life. And he had seen the corporation years ago. So and he has millions of dollars. So he's like, I want Jennifer Abbott to edit it. So she gets this gig to make this documentary for Tom Shadiak. And she needs an assistant editor. And she thinks of me and calls me. And I'm like, oh, shit. Like trying to either go to university or go to Vancouver with Duncan. And I was like, I guess I got to do this. It's such a great opportunity. And it's, it's a great moment. Cause I taking that gig, I was getting paid in like us dollars. I'd been working at this film school, making really not much money, even though I was, you know, working there full time. So this is the first time I was like making good money. And I stayed on Galliano that winter and the Island is a really quiet, pretty like depressing place unless you have like something to work on. I don't think I'd ever actually done a winter by myself on the Island. Like, I think that was the first time ever for me. Uh, and I, so I stayed there all winter and just saw this project with Jennifer Abbott. And the minute it was done, I moved to, to Vancouver. And Lucas, our, our mutual friend, went ahead to find a place and just randomly finds a place for us in East Vancouver on Commercial Drive, right in the action where I didn't know anything about Vancouver, but that's where we wanted to be. And yeah, it happens to like, be like three streets away from where Duncan was already living. And uh, because I had finished this film job, that was actually the last job I ever had. You're listening to Rave Dad's Diary on 90.9 FM CJSW. I'm your host, Paul Brooks, and I'm talking to Nick Middleton and Duncan Smith of The Funk Hunters. Next, Duncan talks about how he came to live at the infamous Brotel in Vancouver, with Homebreaking Records artists, Neighbor, and Think Tank. So how how that all happened? So I I had been introduced to, through Homebreaking through Nick and through Neighbor's music through Nick, um, and and was like really into the, especially back then. Matt was Neighbor was his music was like funky, original. A lot of the other guys through the label, you know, uh, small town and wax romeo and stuff they were doing cool stuff but uh you know and, and check uh, not the alien but it was the, their stuff was a lot more mashup based where neighbors music was like very original and uh i think that set him apart obviously he's such an amazing talent and and i remember going to like a couple gigs maybe before we really knew him one in victoria at the sunset room seeing him play there uh, I think I was there with you, Nick. And uh, anyway, we were a big fan. So after that year, 2009, we booked him to play our after party. And that was like the craziest after party ever. It happened to fall on my birthday. It was like the weekend after Shambhala. And we had like a lineup down the block at this tiny little studio. People were like scaling the side of the building to get in there. And the party was incredible. 
it was so much fun. And it was the following day when I had to go and pay Matt the like, whatever, 500 bucks or whatever we had agreed to pay him. And I went to his place and I had already agreed to move into this other house uh, in East Van, but like a nice house, but not in a great location at all. And when I went there to give him this envelope, their roommate, Paul Murray, also another Calgary boy, was like, well, who's going to move into my room? And I, they were like, hey, Dunks, you looking for a place? And I was like, whoa. And I like left there. And I remember like I couldn't sleep that night because I was like realized that I had to break this contract with this other person. I had to move into this house. And like I had to move into this house because it was just such a great location. The room kind of sucked. But like, obviously, it was like be living with like DJs and MCs, which was just a lot smarter decision. So that opportunity came about and I jumped at it and I moved in with Devin with Think Tank uh, in the lower level of that house, which was where I essentially lived up until April of this year. And um, yeah, it just that was like a really cool connection to, to make and to like become so tight with that whole crew. And I think what I loved about you know, we, Nick and I were definitely like the up and comers or like the, you know, the, the grommets of the, the scene at the time. Like we didn't really collaborate with home breaking or like m- much, like we just had this, I think this great friendship. Um, I think we just drew a lot of inspiration from what we'd seen them done, obviously with the record label, obviously now with what you've done with Westwood, like I see those like kind of parallels of like what Matt, you know, and did with home breaking and kind of creating this, like, you know, building up the scene, especially in Western Canada before, you know, now it's like, I think people kind of look to Westwood as this like Western Canadian iconic music label. But back then it was, it was home breaking. I don't know what year it would be or when in the hierarchy of meeting Matt, but it would have been fairly early on, maybe before, actually it probably was before I really even knew Matt, which makes it better. I just remember being wowed by him musically like I just remember having a moment in the fractal forest at Shambla and I always have these like few moments that are crystal clear in my head of crazy iconic things in my mind that happened at Shambla or like turning points or transformative sets that I saw and one of them for sure was it was one of his like early morning neighbor sets and there was a guy playing funky disco music and he has a guitar which back then you didn't see many instruments in a DJ set and he was playing that disco is back boogie is alive song and it just like blew my mind just blew my mind and so yeah I I just remember always just being a you know separate from like becoming friends with Matt like I was just always a big fan like I just musically I thought he was just really gifted and talented and, and he just oozed this like funky personality in his sets that was really unique and so <clears throat> yeah I remember him saying because that open season mix we did for Homebreaking was 2010 and I remember uh, uh so 2010 is the first year we ever played Shambhala right thanks is that right 2010 yeah yeah that's yeah correct. so I I remember I remember having gone there for years we know that especially back then that it was a big thing to collect cds and mixtapes at Shambhala and often I I would leave the many years I'd been before we ever played there and come home with CDs that would sit in my car and we'd play them forever. And then you also had people that would release their actual Chambla mixes afterwards, but they were two different things. The CDs that you would collect at Chambla was more like 
um, you know, a DJ would make a mix or have a collection of their music at, for promotional reasons and they'd sell them at the booths or give them out. And so I remember thinking about that, like, should we have something there? But we didn't really have, you know, we didn't really know what to do. And Matt hit us up with this opportunity and was like, hey, do you guys want to make a mix? And we'll put it in the Home Breaking Records booth. And back then, Home Breaking Records had their own table in the vendors area at Chambla with a bunch of different mixes and probably tons of neighbors music. And they asked us to make a mix. And so we made that mix. It's one of our earliest like mixes we ever officially released. It was probably the first time that we ever made a mix and someone like pressed it onto a CD and had like a little artwork on it. And I don't know if it was for sale or just for free, but it was the first time we ever did that. And it felt really cool. I remember that to like go up to Chambla that year and be playing and like walk by the home breaking booth and our mix CD is sitting there. And we, actually it was from that mix i think more so than the gig that i remember we got bookings because there was a few different people who uh a couple different promoters like brian hazard and colton mertz booked us out in i think it was that year out in um medicine hat and then rob palermo i think booked us maybe that year in kimberly and i remember it was like yeah. directly because of that mix so it was funny how that how effective those promotional mixes were because it was it was kind of like soundcloud would have been just kicking off right around then right like that was like yeah the birth of soundcloud so we're just leaving the kind of this would have been the last of the cd it went really I think we well. went on to make we kind of put out one that was also a bit iconic for us too that we called the harvest the following year the following but year. we really did that because we because neighbor and homebrick and gave us that opportunity then we were like oh we should do this again next year and we took it a step further and like made a bunch of custom stuff for the mix and i had remixed these old like classic rock songs and there was like a neil young remix and stuff on it we called it the harvest and got our own artwork and pr this time printed it all ourselves that summer and brought it up to Shambla. And I think that one was even like more successful. That ended up in fans' cars and like really helped propel us. But it was really because we had done it the year before with, with Homebreak. And yeah. You're listening to Rave Dad's Diary on 90.9 FM CJSW. I'm your host, Paul Brooks, and I'm talking to Nick and Duncan of the Funk Hunters. Next, Nick and Duncan explain how they came to work with Charlie Tuna of Jurassic 5 fame. And in just a few minutes, we'll get into the Funk Hunters open season mix, recorded and released in 2010. I think yeah. we've both been fans of Charlie and Jurassic 5 for a long time. I was first introduced to Jurassic 5 uh, in 2009, I think. Or sorry, 1999. So from that, from the Ozo Motley album. And uh, I think Nick and I were just huge fans. And ultimately, that was, I think, mutually our probably our favorite MC right like totally yeah. yeah yeah and my brother like growing up on vancouver round you know we listened to a lot of like sweatshop union and uh swollen members and like we had all these kind of iconic you know west coast hip-hop groups here and my brother was super into it and so he he would tell you he introduced me to all that music and i i have a hard time remembering back then but i think he's right because i remember going into his room and we're the same age i have a twin brother but i do remember him showing me like Jurassic five records and sweatshop union records. And uh, yeah, there was just something about it. And it, it makes sense looking back at it now musically, because like, it's a weird comparison to make, but like in a way, the type of electronic music that we really seeked out, especially in those like early formative years of the funk hunters, that's what the funk hunters was kind of about. Like we like all these styles of music, but in each one, like how can we find a real 
like funky flavor of it something that's like a bit more soulful that's a bit like lighter that like puts an extra like you know step in your step that like you know makes you want to dance makes you want to boogie like that's what it was all about and to me when i listened to that drastic all those drastic five albums like that's what was so different because they you know essentially like harmonized as rappers their voices all had like a different timbre to them and the way that they traded back and forth like they were the funky side of hip-hop and so it kind of you know without you know we never overthought it back then but it makes sense now kind of being like analyzing it being like no wonder we all love that kind of hip-hop and you know sweatshop union to me was kind of like a canadian version of that like a bunch of white guys from the west coast but we're, that were doing something really similar and we're, we're super talented and i'm sure if you ask them took inspiration from jurassic five so so we really always listened to that and when you know the internet and technology took off and for us to go online and be able to download acapellas and something that's always been a big part of our sets being two of us is is adding vocals from other songs live while we're DJing and into the mixes that inevitably, uh, you know, we would start to find someone had uploaded a, the Charlie Tuna vocal or the Jurassic Five vocal from a song. And so, you know, the first thing we'd want to do is take that and play it at the same speed of whatever the beat was. And inevitably we had, you know, we would frequently have Jurassic Five vocals in our songs, which is actually what led us to meeting Charlie. It was just simply... We were in Germany making this song with some friends, CMC and Salenta at their studio. We made this super dope beat. We all loved it. And I was like, okay, guys, who do we want on the song? And our German friends jokingly say, oh, Charlie Tuna. And I was like, okay, let's, you know, you never know if you don't try, let's figure out how to get in touch with him. So we like look up his manager and email him. And I had this idea. I was like, hey, before we ask Charlie to get on the track, it's going to be, you know, if they're actually going to listen to it, why don't we put him on the track? So we found an acapella of Charlie Tuna from an old song and literally put his vocal on this new track. And his manager actually writes back and he goes, oh, this is dope kind of thing. And explains that, you know, Charlie's way too busy touring the world to make a song with you, but why don't you release this? And we were like, well, what do you mean? Like, you'll give us permission to like release this? And he was like, yeah, like you can license the vocal. I'm like, okay, like, do we need to say, call it a remix or can we just give it a new name? And the part of Charlie's vocal that we really sampled, he says the line, do this for you. And so if you look up the Funk Hunters, do this for you, you know, it looks like a brand new original song that we put out called do this for you. And we, I, I made a second, like more club version. I think we just called it like a VIP mix, but there's two versions of it that came out. And that is that song. It's an it's a brand new original song, but it has an existing Charlie Tuna vocal on it that was from his 2009 solo album, Fish Out of Water. And uh, we got permission to put it out. And it was I had already started Westwood at the time. And so we really planned it out. So it looked like a new, you know, we, we had some strategy with how we released it. And it went on to get picked up and it was like named in DJ Mag for like song of the month or something for our genre. And like they had a few little successes back in the Beatport days. and we were playing it and Duncan edited a sweet video for it for our video sets. And, you know, I kept kind of hitting up Charlie's manager and I was like, Hey, just so you know, like it, this is, this happened and this happened and here's a screenshot of it in DJ mag. And he was just stoked about it and legitimately said that Charlie liked the song. And next thing we know, we get an email and he's just kind of like, why don't you guys do some, do some shows together? We're like, Oh, okay. And before we knew it, Dunks and I were like on a plane down to LA and we get picked up, not by Charlie, we get picked up by his manager and we get taken to like a hotel and we had booked a rehearsal space for the next day and we meet Charlie, who we might have met, at, we've met at shows before, but like we don't really know him. 
and we meet him and we come with these ideas for what the set could be and his manager gave us some of his music and we kind of concocted this weird mash of some of his songs some of our songs and then here's some dj songs we think you could freestyle on and we make this set and then away we go and i played our first shows with him and it was kind of the first time he had done something like that and the first time we had did something with someone at his level and it just went amazing and we all clicked it off and you know we ended up kind of touring the world over the next few years we did australia with him we toured you know we did a crazy tour in europe and did like 28 shows in 32 days or something crazy through europe with him and of course i've had him up here in canada for all of our big shows and played at chambla with him so yeah i mean it's, it's been an amazing relationship and and again, it's just cool, you know, going back to like the neighbor story, I I think for us, it's, there's just nothing cooler than getting to like work with people that you, you don't, not just working with them because they're big or successful or famous, but you're like just legitimately a fan of theirs. And, you know, still to this day, we're, we're working on a campaign with Charlie right now, re-releasing some songs from his debut album that we've done new 2020 versions of that we're releasing on Westwood right now. And, um, you know, forever, we'll just always be fans of him and his music. You're listening to Rave Dad's Diary on 90.9 FM CJSW in Calgary. That was my conversation with the Funk Hunters. We're going to enjoy a little bit more of this track by Neighbor, and then we'll transition into the Funk Hunters open season mix. Y'all listening to the Funk Hunters, and it's open season. Y'all ready to get funked up? Home breaking records, motherfucker. Let's do this.
story that must be told About two cool brothers that were put on hold They tried to hold us back from fortune and fame They destroyed We got the love, we got the love
can really give a damn. Peace sign up, let me hear you say yeah. Power to the people, put your hands in the air. Peace sign high like I really do care. Fingers in the air like you really give a damn. Peace sign up, let me hear you say yeah. Power to the people, put your hands in the air.
you go home, you say you had a ball. Hey. Need a little love, you know who to see. The one and only legendary JB. We give you more for the dollar. Make your scream shout and holler. Get your loose around the collar. Make the dance flow hotter. Ain't a papa sapper that can hold back the tone. We got that homegrown that sticks to your bone. DJ Yoda and the brothers go on and do the hustle. I find a fine honey and ride on the bubble. Call it hip hop dance. Feel good music. No matter what it is, make sure that you use it. Need a little something to kickstart your day. Listen for the brothers when they start to say, hey, ain't no time for playing around. Got you rocking when the beat drops. Ain't no time for playing around. When you hear this sound, ain't no time for playing around. Got you rocking when the beat drops. Ain't no time for playing around. Set it off, let it off, cock your back. JV's in the house, make the crowd react. I wanna see you get stupid from the front to back. Let me know, let me know, where's the party at? Yeah, pass the mic so I can take this over. I wanna see you dancing like shoulder to shoulder. Put your hand on your hip, let your backbone slip. Put your hand on your hip, let your backbone slip. Get your back from back to the bed. Back from home, like did before. Put your back from back to the bed. Back for more, or find the door. Take your back from back to the rhythm. Back for more, like it before. Put your back from back to the rhythm. Back for more, or find the door. Put your hand on your hip, let your backbone slip. Put the cutie in the middle, let me see you wiggle, get fresh, y'all. Do the beatbox. JP's got you rocking when the beat drops. Turn the radio up, cause we are on. Pick up your cell phone and request a song. JP's keep you moving all through the day. Put a smile on your face with the jams to break. Like I told you before, we don't stop. This is the jump floor, let's make it hot. Ain't no time for playing around. Got you rocking when the beat drops. Ain't no time for playing around. Got you rocking when the beat drops.
like panty locks. Panties drop from hood to hood, block to block. Yeah. I need somebody to get it going on in this party. Baby, you can do it, take your time, do it right. We can drink some yak and do it all damn night. My name ain't Wonder, but I rock the world. Get more bounce than a jam, girl. Too many looking news, be looking for clues. There's a party going on now, what you gonna do? So grab your partner, dozy, yo. If you don't know who it is, it's coolie, yo. Slide, slide, but that's the path. I got some brand new Coming out of water pattern in a fresh pair of atoms. I hope you don't chip cause I don't wanna have to get them. So move your body, baby. Try to hold me straight. The way you shake that ass, it's always amazing. Ain't no party like a West Coast party cause the West Coast party don't spy. So when you see a young nigga in the Chevy hitting switches, then you gotta get a nigga his spy. I got signs in the bars and the motion for your ocean. Cool, don't got the motion to get the party open. Slide, slide, but that's the fast. I got something brand new. Get your woman on the floor. One, two, three, four. Get your woman on the floor. 
episode five of Rave Dad's Diary is coming to a close. Rave Dad's Diary is written, produced, and hosted by Paul Brooks. The show is produced on Treaty 7 land at CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary, Alberta. Season 1 theme music is Orchestral Lab by Guido, released on Punch Drunk Records. The Rave Dad's Diary logo is by Homesick. Stay safe, and we'll talk again next week. Oh.